This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Influential Women in Canadian Agriculture, or IWCA, is a recognition program aimed to celebrate the work Canadian women do to advance the ag industry. Visit our sister podcast channel, Ag Annex Talks, to hear inspiring conversations with seven incredible influential women working in various roles across Canada's ag sector. Beyond the podcast series, you'll hear from these women and so many more during the third annual IWCA Summit on October 18th. This virtual mentorship event is designed for women to share their experiences, life lessons, and challenges with other women in the ag sector. Check out agwomen.ca to listen to the IWCA podcast series and stay tuned for more details about the IWCA Summit. Welcome everyone. My name is Dylan Shirley and I will be your host for this week's episode. Today I am joined by two people. Uh, our, our first guest is John Givlowski. He's the entomologist for Manitoba Agriculture. And I'm also joined by David Kamitsky, the field crops pathologist as well with Manitoba Agriculture. David, John, welcome to Inputs. Thanks, Dylan. So it is no surprise that we're having two people today because we're going to kind of talk about a two-faceted situation that's happening in Manitoba or something that will be happening in the coming months as Manitoba's kind of had a bit of rain over the last couple of months, and we want to just touch on with John and David what this kind of means for uh, on the insect uh, side of things and also plant diseases. So first, let's just lay the groundwork for what's actually been happening on the ground in Manitoba. So Dave, could you talk to me about what the conditions have been um, for Manitoba growers and uh in specific about the precipitation or just how much there's been in the different growing regions within the province? Sure. Since the end of April through May and June, it has been substantially wetter than it has been over the last few years. And uh, as a percentage of normal rainfall, most spots in Manitoba have had uh, 50% more or double the amount of rainfall that is uh, the long-term average, that's over a 30-year period. Um, there's the odd place where precipitation is at or near normal, but I would say most areas of the province have had a lot of moisture to the extent that it has interfered with or delayed seeding. And in some cases, even um, seeding has just not been possible. And we don't have firm numbers yet on how many unseeded acres there are in Manitoba, but we anticipate there will be some. As far as specific regions go, um, there are some where it's more than double the precipitation, but for some of the larger centers like Brandon and Portage, um, we're running at about that 50% higher than, than normal rainfall. Right. So this is pretty unprecedented just overall for precipitation. And John, just in your 
kind of memory, like anecdotally, like how does this kind of compare to other past growing seasons? Like, are we kind of just in something that is completely not the normal for just how the Manitoba growing region is kind of used to? Well, we certainly do get wet years, but the last several years have actually been the opposite, uh, quite dry. We've, in fact, we've had three or four years in a row now where the concern has been more uh, drought related and the fact that it's been so dry, uh, we run into issues, uh, well, that certainly affects insect populations, but also uh, just general crop growth. Uh, the, the issues have been more lack of moisture until this year and all of a sudden the tables are turned and now we're dealing with excess moisture. And again, as Dave alluded to, that does affect, uh, in this case, just getting the crop in the ground was difficult. So one challenge, the pest concerns that farmers deal with, uh, that is influenced very uh, directly by weather. And so we're looking at um, potentially some shifts or changes in the, the, the pests that farmers will be dealing with due to the now excess moisture yeah, it's just unfortunate. You know, it seems like growers can't, you know, get a break. Last year, we're dealing with massive droughts across the entire province. And now it's the exact opposite. You know, the faucets are just turned on. And unfortunately, they are, they're not being turned off anytime soon. So as you alluded, John, we're, we're here to talk about uh, the things that growers might need to be aware of just due to this immense amount of precipitation. And for I just want to start with uh, David here. So um, for plant diseases, what are the current levels that are happening in Manitoba? And are we are you starting to see some interesting or abnormal inquiries from agronomists and farmers as they start to go into their fields, uh, you know, as things are starting to grow here in June? Well, I don't know how it is for John. He often gets a ton of calls compared to the number that I get. And that's just because he has a longer history and everybody knows him. Um, and over the last few years, with it being so dry, there haven't been many uh, calls or concerns about plant disease. But strangely, wet as wet as it is, pardon me, um, I'm not getting a lot of calls this spring. And I would attribute that to growers being really focused on getting that crop in and in the ground. Um, journalists have been asking me in particular about early season diseases and there we would think of root rots um, damping off or um, which of the root rot pathogens will predominate when it's wet or saturated. Um, if there has been flooding um, as the crop recovers, is it affected by some of those root pathogens? And any crop that's under stress becomes more vulnerable to attack by disease. I think that's just a, a truism. But, you know, many um, symptoms that appear on plants are not caused by disease organisms, by pathogens. Um, they might simply be from some abiotic factor, some non-living stress, and those can be nutritional, um, they can be exposure to dry winds, for instance. This last week, we are seeing uh, the tops of cereal crops, particularly oats and barley to some extent, that 
looked white or brown from the road. And that was simply the effects of hot, dry winds over a short period coming from the south. We have seen that before. So um, a colleague of mine once told me that diagnosis, that term diagnosis is to learn to know. And we get experience over time with recognizing these uh, diseases or conditions. Um, that's why producers call us for our kind of long-term memory on these things. Every once in a while, there are peculiar things that crop up, but um, I wouldn't say as yet there's anything out of the ordinary. Uh, we've had some agronomists talking to us about uh, leaf diseases in fall seeded crops, like fall rye and winter wheat. Um, but those are not uh, really unusual occurrences at this time. That's quite interesting, though. So just, you know, you're talking about just the general knowledge that uh, one as yourself might have just being in the position and working in Manitoba for so long. So anecdotally, do you have an idea of how plant diseases kind of work in these early growing periods like May, June, and how those might relate to precipitation levels. I know last in the last couple of years, you probably haven't got too many phone calls because of the drought, but I'm wondering if you've seen a pattern just uh, within your own kind of experience uh, as they, as those two kind of relate to one another. Well, we could start with the root diseases. There are probably five or six different fungi that producers probably somewhat familiar with and this year there would be two that predominate because of the wet conditions they're called pythium and phytophthora and they're in a group that's known commonly as the water mold they survive in a, a wet situation in some cases they have spores that swim in uh, moisture surfaces in soil so they can move laterally and they can live in an oxygen deprived situation. So that's hard on the crop, an oxygen deprived situation. Plants need oxygen in the root zone just as much as they need fertility and water, um, but they're kind of on hold until conditions improve. And that gives those root rot pathogens an opportunity to enter and um, then later the plant can produce new roots and perhaps it can keep ahead of those pathogens and their infection. But to a certain extent, um, some of the damage has been done and the, the crop will be delayed as a result of those organisms being there. And since we didn't get the crop in the ground until late, then we have to begin worrying, maybe not worrying, but concerned about uh, the frost-free period and how open the fall harvest might be. Yeah, and you touched on something quite interesting earlier, just of how sometimes other abiotic factors might be influencing plants and causing them to show so show symptoms uh, that might be comparative to what a plant disease might show on a plant. So um, where would a grower or an agronomist be able to find information um, that could kind of show the difference between the two or how could one find out if they're dealing with a plant disease or just abnormal uh, abiotic conditions? 
Well, there are good resources on recognizing diseases caused by pathogens. And um, I think those are, are widely available to agronomists anyway, and they are familiar with most diseases. It is often when something looks like, but not quite like those pathogenic diseases that they'll consult us. And then we'll ask a lot of questions about what has the crop experienced to this stage or what have been the conditions immediately prior. Um, has the herbicide been sprayed under conditions that are not ideal? Um, what's the fertility that has been used on that field? Um, has there been a significant amount of leaching, which can uh, make nutrients like nitrogen and sulfur less available? All those sorts of things. But the symptoms of abiotic stresses are generally not as uh, clearly defined as, uh, say, a pathogenic disease. Maybe I'll give one example, um, a disease that will continue to be a problem in dry years in canola is blackleg. And we've seen that year over year. Now we're getting better genetic resistance in the varieties that we grow, um, but the symptoms of blackleg infection are quite distinct. They start on leaves as circular white spots in which there are these little black dots. It looks like pepper has been dusted over the spots and those are the spore producing structures. So. I think that most agronomists and many farmers recognize those symptoms. There's another disease which is newer to Manitoba. We're just beginning to see more of it, and that's a thing called verticillium stripe. Uh, it grows on the stems primarily, and it's seen later in the season generally, not not so early. It's kind of as the crop is maturing that it becomes evident. But again. It has distinctive symptoms that we can recognize. Whereas many of the things you might describe as leaf scorch or um, necrosis or just an odd, odd pattern. And I said, we ask a lot of questions when we're talking to producers about those. One of the main things we'll key in on is pattern within the field. Does it correspond to high spots, low spots, um, areas where there's turning around or double application of any of the pesticides that are used, that sort of thing. Yeah, so it, it seems like as long as someone's pretty familiar with what's going on in the field, hopefully they can kind of piece together, you know, what might be one of the crop diseases that you just mentioned or might just be something abnormally kind of occurring in the field. That's wonderful. Thank you for all that information, especially on that uh, that verticillium wilt that you were just kind of talking about there. Now, John, uh, let's let's hop into our uh, six-legged friends, or however many legs that they might have. Uh, how are the insect populations currently uh, so far for uh, Manitoba growers in this wonderful 2022? Well, there's certainly a few insects that the growers are uh, struggling with this year, and not all of them can be directly attributed to excess moisture. Probably the biggest concern right now is flea beetles in canola. Um, there's been some, we've got some very large populations and it's been chronic. The last 
several years, very high populations of flea beetles. This again become almost a chronic thing. And it's very difficult to deal with these high levels. The uh, canola plants do have a seed treatment on them that should give the growers about three weeks of protection from the time that they seed. But anything that delays emergence of the plants, uh, either germination or that early seedling growth, uh, the seed treatments wear out and the flea beetles uh, have a feeding frenzy on the plants. And as a result, there's been a lot of foliar spraying. Um, even before that three weeks is up this year, some people were spraying. And I think that was just extremely high levels of flea beetles. Um, but once the seed treatments wear thin, um, then you really got to watch your canola carefully. Once there's two or, or three or four uh, true leaves on the plant, and the plant's got a bit more leaf material, especially if there's good growing conditions, then the plants can usually outgrow the flea beetles and you don't have to worry as much. Um, we're just getting into that stage now in some fields, but there's been a lot of foliar spraying, people applying insecticides for flea beetles. There's been some reseeding because of flea beetles as well. So that's probably been the biggest issue. Um, people are starting to notice grasshoppers coming out. And I think there was a bit of optimism that while well, maybe all this excess moisture, if there's a silver lining, killed some of the grasshoppers off. I often caution people on that though. Uh, excess moisture in April and May really don't do a lot except for maybe slowing down the development a bit. Uh, the, all of our pest species of grasshoppers overwinters eggs and the eggs are very resilient to excess moisture. And when, uh, a little experiment that I, I often like to talk about just to stress this. A colleague of mine took some grasshopper eggs and put them in a glass of water. He left them there for a week, dumped the water out, the eggs hatched. So that rain you, we get in April and May that's sitting in the ditches um, and maybe sitting in the fields as well, uh, it, because it's creating a cooler environment, it might be slowing the development of the eggs down a bit, but it's probably not killing them. Now, when the grasshoppers first emerge from those eggs, they don't have a lot of fat reserves. They have to feed right away. And if they're prevented from doing that, or if we've got flooded conditions at that time, that's not good for the grasshoppers. Uh, that will kill them. But I'm still cautioning growers, keep an eye on things. Um, we do have, I'll say, some higher levels hatching out in spite of the rain. So I think we had things build up so high over the last few years because of all the drought that uh, I think we've got a, a decent population that's still in the process of hatching out. And I'll just touch on one more that um, has been a, a concern the past few years, and that's cutworms. Um, the cut, we, we have had a little bit of spraying and some concerns but less so than 2021 and much less so than 2020. Now cutworm populations, they go through these cycles where they build up, they're bad for a few years, you reach your peak and then they tend to taper off and it's often natural enemy driven, sometimes weather driven. Uh, this year, the populations aren't as bad as last year. And again, not nearly as bad as 2020. So I think we reached our peak at about 2020. Levels are down, a little bit of spraying for cutworms, but not nearly what it's been in the past couple of years. Disease might be part of it. Dave mentioned uh, diseases are sometimes more prevalent in um, wetter years. Well, that doesn't apply just to 
plant pathogens that can include some of the pathogens that affect insects as well. Uh, sometimes moist, moist conditions will uh, lead to greater, uh, particularly fungal pathogens in some of the insect populations. So that may be contributing somewhat to the cutworm decline, but it's hard to say for sure um, if that was just the normal cycle and or if either fungal pathogens or flooded fields were uh, helping to reduce the cutworms. Geez, that grasshopper story that just seems like the, the tagline, you know, life finds a way in all wonderful situations. Um, so wonderful just kind of hearing about what's going on you know, insect-related for Manitoba, but just trying to pull this back to precipitation. Are there insects that you know that kind of thrive in massively, you know, moist conditions? And are these, or are there any kind of insects that growers should be kind of wary of as kind of the months keep uh, proceeding along here? Uh, so short answer is yes. There are some insects that actually thrive under more excessively moist conditions. One that we're seeing this year um, that fits into that category is something called seed corn maggot. Now this is a fly and it's the larva of this fly that can be a problem. They, uh, they will feed directly under the ground on seeds. They will burrow right into seeds and they will feed on the underground portions as things start to germinate. Now, they, they actually like to feed on decomposing material, but they will feed on live germinating seeds as well. And they, they, they overwinter as, a, as a, a pupa. And when the pupa hatch out in the spring, the females are attracted to the smell of decomposition. Uh, whether that's manure added to a field or decomposing green plant material that's been worked in, or just um, moist soil with a lot of organic matter, that'll, that'll give off the smell of um, a decomposition. Anything that creates that smell of decomposition will draw in these um, sea corn maggot, the, the female flies. When we get very wet years like this, we see more sea corn maggots. Uh, they, they, they do better, they thrive under these um, excessively moist conditions. Um, I had a, a, a call from somebody yesterday in one of the uh, the areas that got hit with a lot of rain, they said some of the fields there, uh, there's patches in the field where water had been sitting a long time. And now the crops there, when they, they're, they're not doing well, and when they uh, start digging around to see what's going on, they're finding seed corn maggots in a lot of the seeds. So that's an issue. And they're one you can't do much about uh, when you find the problem. There's no uh, rescue treatment. You can't just spray something and the problem's gone with sea maggots. They're under the ground, you're not gonna kill them. Uh, another one that we're noticing more of this year is called springtails. And now springtails are, they're not microscopic, but almost. You'll see these little, in this case, they're little white um, specks a millimeter or two long that seem to be moving around in the soil. And some species of springtails are actually uh, semi-aquatic in, in that, they will thrive and build their populations more when we get soils that are towards that saturation point. So they like really wet conditions. And we are seeing more springtails this year. Normally, we consider them beneficials. They feed on uh, decaying organic matter. They're, they're a decomposer, so they're breaking down the plant residue, the stubble. So they're a good thing. Occasionally, they will feed on seedlings. It's 
very rarely an economical problem, um, more of a curiosity thing where people will recognize that in a certain area, the plants just aren't doing as well. And when they dig around, they're finding all these springtails in the soil. And again, they will feed on uh, the young plants and, and the cotyledons. Usually the plants do outgrow the springtails, though. It's not nearly the same severity as seed corn maggot would be. Right. And I'll say with you, John, but I'm going to pass this, the same question along to David in just in a second here. But um, in this kind of scenario that we're seeing with just this high level of moisture and the possibility of some insects not doing so well, but others doing quite well, uh, what are kind of the management options that are available for producers uh, in this kind of early to mid transitional period in the growing season? As far as management options, of course, we always start with scouting, um, just observing what's happening in your fields and even in, around your fields in the case of grasshoppers, because they often move in from the outside. One thing to keep an eye out for this year, if it continues to be moist, um, getting back to diseases that affect insects, um, there's a fungal pathogen that in some years can really knock down the grasshopper populations. And you know you've got it when you see grasshoppers dying, clinging to the top of the plants. The, um, the fungal pathogen changes their behavior and they, they climb to the top of the plants, end up dying there, and you get this dead grasshopper carcass at the top of the plants. So I'm gonna be optimistic that we might start to see a greater level of this pathogen in the grasshopper population if we continue to get moist, damp conditions. So again, the moisture can have a, um, a benefit effect in that way. Um, keep an eye on things like wheat midge, sunflower midge, uh, some of the other things that need a bit of moisture to really get their cycles going. Um, wheat midge, if, they, if we don't get at least 20 millimeters of rain in May, then sometimes their emergence and development is very erratic and delayed. Um, so we've had years where we suspect that has uh, been the case. This year, they would have had uh, more than enough moisture to, to get them going. Um, they may be slowed down in their development a bit because of the cooler soil conditions, but um, emergence should be good. And another one, again, a sunflower image. Um, historically, when we do get um, bouts of wetter weather, that's when we start to see more sunflower image issues. So for sunflower growers, um, that might be something to watch for when we get into the, the, um, the stage where the sunflower heads start coming out. Now, David, we, we just finished talking about some maybe beneficial pathogens, but let's, let's turn it around and start talking about some maybe not so great pathogens uh, and how growers can start to manage them. Uh, are there some best management practices available uh, that producers can utilize in, you know, say end of June, early July, if they start seeing some of this, the root rot pathogens that you were talking about earlier or any other kind of typical pathogen that will come up due to higher precipitation levels? The root rot pathogens, there really isn't any way of intervening at a later stage of crop development. <clears throat> but as you've been talking about with John, there are diseases that are really favored by wetter conditions. And a couple of them are things that have been real bugbears for uh, producers, especially in Manitoba. And I'll start with the uh, cereal crop. 
um, and that's affected by a fusarium head blight, uh, which many producers know and uh, sadly are quite familiar with. Uh, it's been almost absent now for the past three years. We find small amounts of it. It's favored by heat and humidity at the time that the crop is just headed and into flowering. Once flowering appears, especially in wheat, you'll see the yellow um, pollen-bearing structures, the anthers being chucked out of the glooms. After that stage, the crop is not susceptible. Um, and fungicides are used quite routinely now at that stage for um, doing our best to suppress head blight materials. And sometimes the same products that are used are useful against the leaf diseases, the foliar diseases, which make their way up within the canopy through the, the growing season. Um, turning to other crops, there's a pathogen called sclerotinia, and it affects a wide variety of crops. Um, one of the worst, for instance, is sunflowers. And if you've had a sunflower field, especially in a wet year, you'll be leaving behind a lot of the resting structures of the fungus. They can survive in dry soils for a long time. And again, when it's wet, when those are near the surface, they'll germinate and start pumping out spores. And those spores can affect canola, field peas, sunflowers that I mentioned, virtually all broadleaf crops to some extent. Um, of course, canola is one of the big three crops that we grow. So that's one where most of the time, um, as we're in the early bloom stages, producers and agronomists are evaluating what is the, the risk of infection. And in some cases, it's become a prophylactic use. Although over the last few dry years, um, many times producers are saying, I'm not spending any more money on fungicides because the crop is, is not a big producer as it is just from the drought. But when you have a crop that looks really good, you can realize that a significant amount can be lost to uh, sclerotinia stem rot. So that's always one to keep on the radar during wet, wet cycles. Great. Now I'll, I'll stick with you, David. We're, we'll just kind of wrap up here. Uh, I know we've thrown around a lot of different plant diseases and insects today, uh, but I just want to kind of wrap this up and allow you guys just to touch on maybe the top three uh, of each that uh, Manitoba growers and agronomists should really be out, out on the look for uh, in these next coming months here being, you know, the end of the growing season, July and August. So David, just first to you, what are kind of your main or top three kind of crop diseases that Manitoba growers should be on the look for? Well, if by on the look for, that means scouting fields and seeing symptoms I would say that the foliar diseases in cereals, um, the foliar diseases in uh, field peas, which are now becoming more and more commonly grown in Manitoba, those are things that you will see developing and be able to intervene. The two other big ones that I mentioned that I'll put on my top three list are Uzerium hidlite and 
sclerotinia in canola and other crops. And with those, uh, once you see symptoms, the horse is out of the barn. You have to anticipate and or rely on risk forecasts to tell you um, whether or not to, to intervene. And actually it is in a preventative fashion in, the, in that case. We do produce a risk forecast for Fusarium headlight in cereals, and that will be um, launching next week on Monday. Uh, we've already been looking at the data and seeing where the map is. Saskatchewan has been producing their map already for some weeks. Um, that may be because they have more winter cereals than we do, and it's winter cereals that are approaching the vulnerable stage. Most of our spring cereals are quite some time for, from that, uh, but we want to have that risk forecast uh, ready. On the other hand, the sclerotinia, which is the one disease that we have to anticipate, um, we don't produce a risk forecast for that. And that is perhaps because it is so field specific, depending on the history of the crop and uh, really microclimate conditions within those crops. But I would recommend that Canola Council's website for looking at their checklist approach to determining your risk of Virginia and canola. Love that analogy, by the way, horse out of the barn. Uh, John, uh, to you now. So uh, your kind of top three insects that Manitoba growers should be kind of out on the look for uh, in into as we get into July here. Okay, so I, I'm going to put grasshoppers at the top of my top three list. Um, again, I'm not fully convinced that we're out of our um, grasshopper, our high populations of grasshoppers. Um, things did build quite a bit over the last, say, four years. Um, there was a lot of egg laying that would have gone on last fall. Um, survival over winter was probably good. We may lose some of them due to some of the excess rain. And as I mentioned earlier, there could be some pathogens that get in the population. But we still want to be scouting for the grasshoppers. Uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that we're out of the woods with them by any means. Now, the other two on my list are going to be things that either blow or migrate in because in addition to the things that overwinter here, we also try to keep track of things that um, may be coming in from the south. And two that we've got traps up for this year are diamondback moth, which is a crucifer pest, so canola, and um, armyworms. So diamondback moth, um, they don't overwinter well in the prairies. They blow in on the winds. We put up traps early in the season. And we've got had some interesting results this year. We've got some, I'll call them moderate to high counts in the eastern region and the eastern part of the central region. So eastern Manitoba. Um, we've got some trap counts that are in the 150 to 200 moth range. Now, to be honest with you, we really don't know what that means. But in comparison, our traps in western Manitoba are getting counts like three, four, Five, quite boring, um, but big difference between what we're catching in Western Manitoba and Eastern Manitoba. And really that's the value of these traps. Again, we really don't know what 150, 200 means, 
but we can see relative areas of the province that have higher lower levels. So it appears to us that we did have some uh, populations blow in to that eastern part of the province. Um, who knows, they could be impacted by our weather, parasites, um, poor egg laying. There's no guarantee that we'll have a lot of larvae, but I think if you're scouting canola fields in the east, do look for diamondback moth larvae. Also, armyworms. Uh, now, armyworms don't overwinter anywhere near Manitoba. They have a migration, though. It's, a, it's not just being blown, and they purposely will migrate north, but they will be wind-assisted as well. And we do have traps for them as well. And they have also been more numerous in the east and the eastern part of the central region. Same as with the diamondback, same areas we're seeing more of the armyworms in the traps. When I use the term armyworm here, I'm not talking Bertha armyworm, which a lot of people are familiar with that eats canola. I'm talking about one is properly just called armyworm. Some people will call it true armyworm. It likes cereals and forage grasses. It's more, it's not a grass specialist. It will feed on other things, but just like us, they've got their preferences and what they would like to feed on. And they like the grassy plants. So cereals, forage grasses. So if you're scouting those, especially in the Eastern part of the province, I would say have a look, especially at ground level during the day, see if you can be finding armyworms and see if you can start to see any evidence of armyworm feeding. Fantastic, top three, both of you. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, just before we go, John, David, where can people find you if they have burning questions about what they've been finding in their fields uh, in the next coming months or so? So yeah, we're, we're both with Manitoba Agriculture, so they can look up our contact information there. And I should also mention, we do put out a weekly Manitoba crop pest update goes out usually every Wednesday. It keeps people informed on insects, diseases, and weeds that are of current concern. Um, the focus is not to be rewriting fact sheets, is to be telling you what is currently happening in the fields and maybe a couple of tips or two on how to look for it, a little bit about it, and all our contact information is at the bottom of that report as well. I agree with John that that's the best place to find us in the uh, notes at the end of the crop pest update. And um, there is one other contributor that we see from time to time. That's John Hurd, our soil fertility nutrient specialist. Um, he often contributes to that as well. Great. Well, again, John, David, thank you so much for joining me on Inputs. Uh, look out for the new exciting information that you guys are going to be putting out and also check on uh, other places like the council for information about uh, all the bad and awful diseases that might be heading to some fields. But again, uh, David, John, thank you so much for joining me today on Inputs. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.